0: Hello and welcome to The Edition, the Spectator's weekly podcast where we discuss some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast. In the aftermath of the Stratton attack, we take a look at how our prisons became finishing schools for extremists, plus what on earth has just happened in the Iowa caucus, and finally...
1: A beautiful sky, a
2: wonderful day. Whip, crack away, whip,
0: crack away. Is there anything true in the stories about Calamity Jane? First up, how could a troubled teenager with a minor drug habit have become a knife-wielding terrorist within two years of his being jailed? Ian Aitchison, a former prisons officer, writes in this week's cover piece that our prisons are becoming finishing schools for terrorists. Meanwhile, James Forsyth writes that this is the most pressing issue for the Tory government to resolve. He joins me now, together with Harass Rafiq, CEO of the counter-extremism organisation Quilliam. James, you write in your poll call this week that terror is now the toughest issue facing the Tories. How so exactly?
1: Well, I think the problem essentially is this. The public expect the government to protect them. But there is a problem. You know, In the aftermath of 9-11, terrorists were generally inspired by Al-Qaeda and what they wanted to pull off was spectacular attacks. That meant that from the moment someone was radicalised, there was quite some time before them carrying out an attack. And that enabled the state to build a case against them and prosecute them for a relatively serious offences. The problem with the current generation of jihadis in, inspired by Islamic State is they go from being radicalised to wishing to act very quickly. And as the stress and attacker showed, they are quite happy just to stab a few random people. And that means that the security services and the police need to take them off the street much earlier in the process. That means that the things that the offences they can be charged with are relatively minor. You know, the, the Stratton attacker had been in prison for distributing extremist materials, not for not for any actual action. But the problem you then come to is that when they come to the end of their sentence, they are still dangerous. So so what do you do? Because, I mean, the public, there have been two attacks so far of this nature. And I think if there is a third, the public's patience for releasing people who the authorities know to be dangerous back out into the streets, it is going to become very limited.
0: Harris, in the case of Sudeir Shaman, the Streatham attacker, it seems as if he went into jail and came out much more radicalised than when he went in. How, how big a problem are our jails in all of this?
3: Well, well. First of all, just just to add something to what James said, that uh, so I, I, I was an advisor to Europol for uh, just over two years, and my boss at the time, Gilde kakov said in an open forum in Prague, and I was sitting next to him, that the shortest time that he's seen where somebody is empathetic to Islamist jihadism, going through sympathy and actually becoming operational, the shortest time he'd seen was about two weeks. So the time actually can be very, very quick. In this particular case of the uh, terrorist attack in Streatham and uh, the case of Ammon, I don't buy into the fact that, first of all, he was radicalised in prison, as his mother said. Now, I'm I'm a parent myself. I have three children, and I fully understand that when a child carries out this kind of Incidents and this kind of horrific act, uh, a parent is looking for answers, and sometimes there's a. uh, Sometimes we, as parents, a parent can lash out. This guy was actually uh, arrested, and he was charged uh, for actually wanting to, in his words, die a martyr, carrying out a terrorist attack. So he was actually radicalized to quite a severe degree before he went in. But you're right in terms of prisons. You know, people quite often in the past, I've somebody once said to me that somebody can go into prison as a petty criminal and come out as a professional thief. Prisons are a hotbed for radicalization, for actually indoctrination, and actually getting people to, criminals to belong to a gang. And we have a real problem. And the problem is that the current system we have of trying to de radicalize and rehabilitate is not really working, it's not fit for purpose. It has been good in the past and it keeps changing, but the way it's run at the moment where there is a reduced amount of focus on ideology and more of a focus on the psychology behind somebody being violent and how they see violence as part of a, in inverted commas, healthy identity, and then an automatic release halfway through the sentence where, no experts have gone before a judge and said this person uh, is not likely to uh, reoffend and is the threat level is quite low, I think is astonishing. And I think that uh, a lot of changes need to be made.
0: In, uh, in his piece this week, Ian Acheson says that he initially thought that people shouldn't be cut off, extremists shouldn't be cut off from the other prison population, but he's now changed his mind. What, what did you make of that?
3: No, I, I, I agree with him. I, I think that... Uh, We do need to take the more serious offenders, but also the people who are charismatic recruiters and keep them separate from people who would be recruited to the cause. I absolutely feel that this is the time. I I used to be the same thinking as, as Ian as well, and I came to change my views over the last sort of year and a half, two years. But we do need to keep them apart. It's about managing risk, and that's a key component of managing that risk.
0: James, in your column, you also suggest that other things need to be looked at rather than just the prison system. What kind of things were you thinking of?
3: Well, I
1: I think in some ways this argument about early release is a slight red herring because these people are going to come out at some point anyway. Now, obviously, it is a sign of the the lunacy of the current system that these people are automatically being released early for for all the reasons Harris just said. But I think there is a, a, a problem, which is, what do you do with someone who at the end of their sentence is still dangerous. So they have served their time for, mm. their, for the offence they've been convicted of, but they're still dangerous. Now, I think this is a problem that Whitehall is trying to work out how to deal with. I think one of the more interesting ideas floating around, and it has its problems, but it is something based on the sectioning power that they have under the Mental Health Act. So they could basically say, as long as this person is a danger to themselves and to others, and if you wish to be a, if you wish to become a martyr, you clearly are a danger to both yourself and to others. They can keep you detained. And I think that, I think there are problems with that because I think that there are two big issues with that to my mind. One, I am deeply uncomfortable with the idea of the state saying that holding certain views makes you insane. And secondly, I think it denies the role of ideology in mm. having radicalise these people in the first place. But it does provide an answer to the question of how do you keep these people off the streets? And I think this is the problem, which is, if the authorities are successful, these people are going to be convicted before they have managed to carry out an attack. And
0: is the idea that they would be sectioned indefinitely?
1: Yes, until it was concluded that they were no
3: risk to themselves and to the public.
0: Harris, what do you make of that?
3: I I don't think that would work entirely, James, and and I'll tell you the reasons why. I agree with you that this diminishes the role of ideology, but the the reality is that uh, carrying out a terrorist attack in the name of Islamist-inspired jihadism is not a mental illness, and people can be rehabilitated. I think that there would be challenges to this in court, and I think it would be very, very embarrassing for the government if they lost a case, and that would open up the floodgates for a whole bunch of other other things. I'd rather like to see a, a model... Similar to the Australian model where a review is taken, is carried out, is undertaken by experts. And I'm not talking about psychiatrists and I'm not talking about, yes, they do need to be involved, of course. But I'm talking about real experts, people who can ask real questions around what role Sharia or certain interpretations of Sharia or Fiq play in their identity. For example, if you believe that somebody who is somebody should be stoned to death for committing adultery then that you know a tick in the dangerous section if you and and these people can't answer those they can't lie rather than lie because they'd see that as shirk. they see that as as something that is going against god's law and if they really still believe in this ideology they still will believe that, that people should be stoned to death for committing these sort of crimes and rather than say no they will refuse to, the, uh, refuse to answer the question. So a number of questions can determine what somebody's ideological state of mind is. And I'd rather see a, a panel of experts going in front of a judge and then a judge making a decision because we can't really keep people in prison indefinitely for carrying out low-level terrorist crimes. Rather, we should try and uh, rehabilitate them. But if they're not fit for release, then uh, keep them in for uh, the full term.
0: James, I mean, there are people being stabbed in London... All the time, it's you know, keep re- re- relieving these stories. And this guy didn't actually get very far with his attack. I mean, are the Tories using this as a way to kind of reinforce themselves as the sort of party of law and order?
1: No, I think there is, I think there is a difference. I mean, first of all, I mean, I think any knife crime is problematic, but I also think that this is this was totally randomized violence designed to terrorise the population. Now, you, you, you say no one died. He stabbed two people. It, it was probably inches away from there being two fatalities in in this case. And so I think, you, I think there is a challenge there. I also think that you've got to remember that one of the reasons why Islamic State want these kind of attacks carried out is to sow distrust between populations and to encourage communal tension. And I think if, if the state does not Deal with this issue, you will get that. I mean, this is the, one of the explicit aims of Islamic State in encouraging its supporters to do this: is to try and create communal tensions in in Western countries. So I think I think this is this is difficult, but I think there is a thing a point worth noting here, which is yeah, this is a government that is not that is actually quite happy to end up in court if you see, I mean, Normally, governments would dislike the idea of being challenged in court over their programs. I think this government's attitude is slightly bringing on on that front. Now, you can debate whether that is a, whether that approach is sensible or not, but I think they are they are not going to shy away. If people say to them, oh, you will be challenged on human rights grounds on this or challenged on legal grounds on this, I think they'll be quite happy. I think, though, that if you look at what their proposal is to, that they're going to put to Parliament next week, the, the QCs I talk to think that that will, that the courts will uphold that because it isn't changing then the sentence, it is purely changing the operation of the sentence. So it would not be seen as retrospective legislation.
0: Thank you, James and Harass. Next, after months of campaigning, this was meant to be the week that the Democratic primaries started, kicking off with the Iowa caucus. But instead, a technical glitch means that at the time of recording, we're still not quite certain of what the result is. So how damaging has the shambles been for the Democratic Party? Freddie Gray writes about it in this week's magazine, and he joins me now, together with Karen Robinson, host of the Primarily 2020 podcast and former vice chair of Democrats Abroad UK. Freddie, in your piece this week, you say that this is the best week that Trump's had, what with the Iowa caucus calamity and the failed impeachment. How have the Democrats managed to get this quite so wrong?
2: Well, it's spectacular. And I mean, it almost seems kind of cosmic, almost, that the the Democrats seem unconsciously to be destroying themselves or doing everything possible to scupper their chances in 2020. And it was a very good week for Trump, not just because of the acquittal, but also because of very good economic numbers again. And also his job approval rating hit 49%, which is the highest it's been since he's been in office. Uh, Barack Obama, I think, after his first term was on 46. So it's all looking pretty rosy. His State of the Union address was incredibly positive. And even the most, you probably have to be fair-minded, I'd say, but the most fair-minded Trump critic would have to admit he does have quite a lot of things he can point to and say that's an achievement.
0: Karen, looking at Iowa, can you explain to a British audience what exactly has gone <laughs> quite so wrong this week in the system of caucuses? Well,
4: uh- no, because no one really knows fully in terms of what actually happened in Iowa. The The specific thing that happened was that after running a very smooth primary process in the sense of the caucuses themselves were smooth and well run and, you know, what have you, at the very end of it, in terms of it was time for them to report their results and the app that people were encouraged to use singularly failed and then the telephone backup system where people were dialing in their results also failed and for reasons that elude everyone's understanding. It has now taken them days and they've been trickling results out, which I personally find an absolute tragedy because we have had, as I say, the caucuses themselves run very smoothly. There were really interesting stories happening behind the disaster about which candidates were doing well, which candidates were not. You know, you've got a lovely little story about Pete Buttigieg, a kind of mayor who surged out of nowhere, you know, the first gay American to run for to run for president on a, on a major platform. You know, he looks to have possibly and we're still not completely sure possibly won the Iowa caucuses or possibly Bernie Sanders has won the Iowa caucuses because it depends on which measure you're counting so those two were kind of neck and neck very close, very interesting race behind that you've got Senator Elizabeth Warren who outperformed her own polling and then you've got you know Joe Burden behind there we would have liked to be talking about those candidates and we would have liked to be talking about the race itself or the issues behind it instead we spent a week miserable just trying to figure out what was happening and it's a terrible shame, it's really unfair to the candidates, unfair to the thousands and thousands of volunteers and activists who were out in Iowa for well over a year. And the reason why it's particularly troubling is that the only reason we allow Iowa to go first is because, you know, it's not a representative state, caucuses are a weird thing to do. But normally, it generates quite an exciting, interesting kind of start to the race. And it gives you a nice positive bump in the bump in the media to talk about positive things and kind of get people curious and excited about politics. And obviously, that didn't happen. So hopefully it happens in New Hampshire on Tuesday. (laughs) Fred, as Karen says, and obviously it's quite hard to tell what's going on yet, but what, what do you think we
0: can glean from what we know so far about the results?
2: Well, I think uh, we can say that Bernie Sanders is the major force in the race at the moment. Pete Buttigieg has obviously surprised everyone in Iowa, but he'd sort of bet the house on Iowa. So if he hadn't done very, very well indeed, his campaign would have probably disappeared rather quickly. We now move on to New Hampshire, where Bernie is polling quite far ahead. He destroyed Clinton there last time. So, I think what we're now looking at is the, the, the sort of rise of Bernie, uh, who's a socialist, and uh, you'll hear all sorts of Republicans saying in the next few weeks that he spent his honeymoon in the Soviet Union and things like that. And then emerging as we approach Super Tuesday on March the 3rd, which is when 16 states decide. We have Michael Bloomberg, who is going to be the billionaire.
0: And he's stayed out of Candidate. this.
2: One of this the billionaire yeah. candidates. Well, well there's, there's several billionaire <laughs> candidates. I mean, I think a lot of people, are hoping, a lot of journalists are hoping there's going to be this nice contrast of the socialist versus the billionaire, the centrist globalist versus the radical insurgent. But they're both very old. That's what brings them together.
0: <laughs> and what about Biden?
2: Biden, sadly, is, is failing uh, miserably. And I, this makes me sad because I've always enjoyed Biden's unbelievable ability to gaff at every possible occasion. And I think it would have been quite funny, although perhaps a little sad, because he does seem to just have not got a proper grip on this race or his mind. And so I think, unless he has a very surprising rally in New Hampshire, which is quite a favourable state for him in some ways, he will just disappear.
0: Karen, what do you make of Bernie's chances? I mean, can you see America voting for him?
4: I mean, honestly, I think all bets are off at this point. I think Bernie Sanders, I will say... You know, I don't have a candidate. I'm, I'm sort of candidate hopping right at the moment. I'm shopping for the right person. So um, I'm giving Bernie a good look. What are, you, what are you looking for? So I'm looking for somebody who, obviously, I think most Democrats, I'm like most Democrats in that we would all say we're looking for somebody who can win first and foremost. So I'm looking for someone with that. And I'm not as convinced as some other people are that Bernie Sanders is necessarily inherently the, the kind of the curse of doom. He probably wouldn't be my first choice purely on electability grounds. But I think he's interesting because I think it's more voters, especially the voters we need to win in the upper Midwest, in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania they're not necessarily responding on ideological grounds i think they're responding to a candidate's more on cultural grounds they're looking for people who feel like somebody they can relate to and that's one of the reasons why joe biden actually overperforms there a little bit like he does pretty well in those states and the polls show that he's actually you know head to head in head to head polls the person who does the best in those swing states the person who does the second best according to those polls if you believe them is actually bernie sanders even though they're very very different ideologically and i think it's because he has a certain kind of rough and ready, you know, relatable sort of, you know, man on the street tone to. I mean, there's a sort of populist strain to American politics right now for which Bernie Sanders might be the right person. And interestingly, he and and, and Joe Biden, who are so different in many ways, are actually in some ways kind of resonating with people in the same way. Neither of them would probably be my first choice of candidate at the moment, but I'm still, I'm still shopping. I'm still thinking.
0: (laughs) And Fred, is there a sense that any of the candidates would worry
2: Trump? I mean I I tend to think that Bernie Sanders worries Trump the most if you listen to that leaked audio of the Parnas audio well which came out of Ukraine gate which was a dinner with Trump and various donors and he suggested that Sanders he he was afraid that that Hillary was going to pick Sanders as her vice president in 2016 because he's very good on trade and what Trump recognizes is in these crucial swing states trade talking negatively about nafta is a vote winner because people worry about their jobs, understandably enough. So I think the Trump camp are more afraid of Sanders than they'd let on. And I think Trump himself has suggested in not quite in private, but has has suggested that he likes his chances against Warren, particularly.
0: Karen, let's talk about the failed impeachment trial. I mean, how damaging do you think that would have been for the Democrats? Look,
4: the, the, the question is loaded. Here's the situation. The President of the United States committed an abuse of power in order to try and cheat himself into reelection. He tried to bully, cajole and bribe a US ally by withholding funds that he was legally required to distribute to protect that ally from his good friend Vladimir Putin of Russia. He did that un- under the radar secretly, tried did everything he could to try and cover that up, including refusing to allow members of his administration to testify in front of Congress. Under those circumstances, if the President of the United States is trying to cheat his way into re-election, we don't have the option of doing nothing about it. You've got to do something. So we looked at all of the options that we have available to hold the President to account. And impeachment was the constitutionally. Author, authorized remedy for presidential abuse of power. The Founding Fathers spent a lot of time thinking about this. It was something they were very concerned about. Almost, They almost wrote it by name, right? Like Donald Trump is the person they were worried about. They were worried about corruption, they were worried about foreign interference, and they were worried about kind of a person of bad moral character trying to intervene in the elections. We did our part in fulfilling the democracy. Democrats did our part as, bless his heart, did Mitt Romney who is somebody I've, I disagree with about many things, but who's a person personally admirable person and and a genuine patriot. Every other Republican in the US Senate has decided that their party's interests are more important than the democracy. And I think voters need to know that. So I think, you know, although it was an unpleasant process for all of us, and although it's a sad day for America that we are where we are, I think we made the right decision morally, constitutionally, and frankly, politically, I don't see that we had any other choice. You can't cheat your way into re-election. It's not allowed.
2: Uh, well, I'm afraid I disagree uh, with rather rather a lot. I'm man. shocked, shocked. Uh, I mean, I do find it odd to hear Democrats being quite so in bed with a very neocon vision of uh, what America's role in Eastern Europe is. I mean, America is not at war with Russia. It doesn't have any moral obligation to fund a Ukrainian, to military to provide military aid to Ukraine. And okay, but it's, the aid was a, passed a, just the a curious a, alliance. Of unanimously, sort of John Bolton. The, the, the John Bolton aid was, was with, passed with, by
4: Congress. So whether you think it's right or not, that was that was his legal. Well, yes, obligation. but also
2: he didn't withhold it. You know, he didn't withhold oh, it yes, beyond the did. legal deadline. Yes, well, he did. <laughs> he, it was paused. It was paused while you know you can you can argue it either way. You can say he paused it so that he could dig up dirt on Joe Biden. Well, Perhaps that's it, true. Or you could say he paused it while the while the, his government was looking into <laughs> corruption in Ukraine. I mean, I I do think you know it. The Democrats love to pull these sort of, you know, high and mighty cards about the Constitution and what the Founding Fathers were. But this was a nakedly political attempt to get Trump. And, and they've been trying to do it since 2016. They tried to do it over Russia. That failed. So they tried to do it over Ukraine. And that's now failed. And, I mean, you know, it's quite hard to disagree when you hear you hear Trump is saying they are afraid of Trump at the ballot. And if you look at the mess in Iowa, it seems like they're incapable of taking Trump on at the ballot.
4: Hmm. Well, it, for what it's worth I think we can come to unanimous agreement that the head of the Iowa Democratic Party should not be President of the United States I'll, I'll give you that much <laughs> yes, I, I
2: think he should I think he's <laughs> rather charming
4: Freddie and Karen thank you
0: and finally oh,
5: the stage are-
0: You know Calamity Jane is a russian Tutan heroine of the American Wild West, but how much of that is actually based in fact? As it turns out, not much. In Calamity, a new book by the historian Karen Jones, the real Martha Jane Canary is revealed. Sam Leith reviews the book in this week's issue, and my colleague Cindy Yu talks to Karen Jones to find out more about the woman and the legend.
5: So, Karen, your book debunks the many myths surrounding Calamity Jane. Can you start by refreshing listeners' memories on what is she supposed to have done and who is she supposed to have been?
6: Calamity Jane has a reputation for doing all manner of things, most of which have been commemorated in books and particularly in movies. So she's renowned as the the saviour of the Deadwood stage, of course, famously appearing in the Doris Day musical. She's, she speaks of saving Deadwood II from the ravages of, a, of a, an outlaw who's killed Wild Bill Hickok. So she captures Jack McCall armed with a meat cleaver and restores the town to justice. Uh, she particularly talks very much about her army career, claims to have been a scout for the, for the military, claims to have worked for Custer and various other generals. I think probably the most intriguing counterfactual that she presents to, to journalists is the idea that she was nearly available at the Little Bighorn to swoop in and save Custer, but she's only minutes away from delivering this, this salvation to the 7th Cavalry. So, so she's renowned for frontier stories, stories which really communicate the myth of the 19th century American West and uh, are filled with the tall characters and, and, and legendary figures who inhabit that space.
5: Okay, and is there any of that actually
6: true? No. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> she. In a way, what she does is, is really quite smart, in that, in that she's proximate to all of these things that are happening. So she travels with the army, she's a fixture of Deadwood saloons, She's, so, so she's close enough to the action to, to gain a plausibility to these stories and of course because she's really an orthodox in her style you know she uh, often dresses as a man she's re- she's skilled with firearms she's she's swaggering she's she's a loner she she walks the walk convincingly enough to to allow people to believe her her tales none of these tales have have been confirmed by historical witnesses. So she's she's a raconteur and she certainly becomes a celebrity, but her her fame is all based on, on fable, essentially. Yeah.
5: Yeah, and as you say, she walks the walk.
6: And she also, as you
5: mentioned, wears men's clothes. I mean, that at the time, is that something... I mean, what we think about now, um, looking back, maybe it was something particularly feminist or masculine.
6: But you also mentioned in your book that that's not actually so unique. The interesting thing about the American West is because it's a place of new starts and a place of new beginnings, it, it invites all sorts of opportunities for women, either because they want to test the boundaries of typical uh, feminine behaviour, or because they have to do that in order to 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 live and sustain themselves, so there are lots and lots of stories of of women dressing as men, particularly in gold rush towns, so they can work as miners. It's if you like a hidden history, which is has not been part of the the, the typical storytelling. Motif of the you know the the dead white hero the the custer, the buffalo Bill, um, but it's certainly an I think a really intriguing part of the West in the way that it, it it presents a place which is outside the norm and it gives that possibility of being more transgressive do Do we know why she in particular wore trousers? She claims that it was initially a product of necessity but she also talks in her autobiography which again is a whole other story of of conflation and and invention. She talks there about becoming at home wearing men's clothes and she she starts wearing male attire when she's travelling with the army because it allows her to blend in.
5: You mentioned her autobiography there. I mean, the myth about Calamity Janus seems so far apart from the truth. Does she have a big contribution to that? So
6: the story of her autobiography is an intriguing one because it, it comes out in conjunction with a, a dime novel show, a theatrical performance that she's she's making. So it's there as a, as a souvenir pamphlet to record the testimony that she's delivering to... Theatrical audiences. The thing is, is that most likely she was illiterate, and so this this product, this this textual record, if you like, is is more likely to be the record that it's that's co-produced both from the stories that she's told for years in bars, in mining towns, and railroad towns in the West, and the designs of a, a literary writer who's who's essentially written up the script that she delivers every night to to audiences at these museum shows.
5: And it's incredible. You mentioned the Wild West as this sort of place where rules don't apply. I mean, what's particularly interesting is that there's demand for shows like this. So Americans at the time were already fascinated with this frontier, even though it was still happening right across the country.
6: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a curious collision, really, that while the West is being won, it's being written into fable and history at exactly the same moment. Uh, so there's no lag, if you like, the, the invention is being constructed at the same time. So the intriguing part to that is you have characters who've had practical roles in, in the West, uh, Buffalo Bill was a good example of this, who then turn their attention to uh, show business and communicate their stories and retell their stories and in most cases embellish their stories so that they're, they're grander and more exciting and more adventurous. So the West is this venue that both audiences on the in the eastern United States and the urban cities are really keen to consume as all action adventure but also as a, a really important part of their national history. That too translates beyond the United States buffalo bill plays all over europe uh, plays in london Uh, and so that appeal of the west as an exotic space a place of adventure is is is, has got a global reach
5: really and that popular portrayal is so fascinating because there's one part in your book where you talk about how the portrayal of her has changed over the years that she used to be seen as quite feminine but it wasn't she wasn't really like that at all and listeners can find pictures of her in the magazine this week as well so what what does it to say about the societies that came after her in their own portrayals of her as calamity jane
6: i feel that she's she's constantly reinvented to fit the needs of of the culture of the time so for instance when you travel through the 20th century her her image is very much feminized if you look at doris day doris day don't look anything like uh, the historical pictures we have of of Calamity Jane, but of course, this film that's produced in in the 1950s is there to present, on one level at least, uh, conformity and domesticity and the the screen idol in Buckskin. That that's it's it's a woman who is independent and feisty, but then she settles down and is is necessarily tamed. I mean, there's a, a huge subtext about the the hidden stories within the musical in terms of the relationships between some of the the lead women characters but certainly if we look at the way that calamity jane is is manufactured and rebadged it's uh, her role is to to speak to the, the cultural desires of the time i think that was karen jones and cindy Yu, and that's
0: everything this week If you pick up the latest issue, as ever, you can read everything we've talked about, as well as more from A.N. Wilson, who's in conversation with Sinclair Mackay about the bombing of Dresden, Sarah Sands, who writes this week's diary, and Julie Birchall. And we've also got a new offer. You can get a free Brexit butterfly mug, as well as 12 issues of The Spectator for just £12, if you subscribe at spectator.co.uk forward slash mug. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week.